Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Getting Hammered. I am your host, Mary Catherine Ham. Vic Mattis is not with me today. We let him go on vacation. I know, crazy. But I have joining me an illustrious guest, Matt Lewis. You can find him at Matt K. Lewis on Twitter. He's the author of a brand new book called Filthy Rich Politicians, and he writes for the Daily Beast as well. You got any other affiliations everyone needs to know about, Matt? I do. I do a blogging heads show still with Bill Share. Yes. Actually, when I was reading the the intro to your book, I wondered as I was reading it, is this Bill Share or someone else? And it actually was one of my friends, Batya Unger Sargon, who is a great writer and a great thinker who I enjoy very much. So it spoke well of you as soon as I started. She is terrific. Yes, yeah, she wrote the foreword to the book. And I really wanted to have just diversity of of people involved. If you look at the blurbs on the back, it's like, Glenn Greenwald and Ramesh Panuru and Andy Ferguson. And then I had Batya, who was kind enough to write the foreword. And I think that says it all about the the spectrum of people who thought this is an important topic. Yeah. So the uh, let's let's talk a bit about the book because it dovetails nicely with some of the news of the day. I think, you know, we're all sort of there's been a populist streak in the left and then increasingly on the right uh, for many years. And as we're watching it animate maybe the 2024 race, both on the left and the right, actually, because you have RFK Jr. Uh, with his pull in, in the teens in, in that part of the race. How does this sort of concern about the elites and how they govern animating all of this? What does your book have to say about, about those currents? Yeah, so, I mean, I, my take is that the, the book is about how the rich get elected and the elected get rich. And so... Part of it is the fact that your average member of Congress is like 12 times richer than the average American household. And that's bound to have some sort of disconnect, especially since the gap has widened considerably in recent decades. And the other half of the book is about how once people get elected, they almost always get richer. And that, I think, is much more corrosive to trust in liberal democracy and lawmakers and institutions and all that. So honestly, that's how I was able to approach this book. I'm not like a fire-breathing populist, and I didn't want to write a book that was, you know, pitchforks and lanterns and let's, you know, eat the rich or something like that. My theory is that there is a sense that the game is rigged and that our elected officials are cashing in, and that sense is eroding trust in institutions and, and leaders, and that's bad. And so if you care about this country, you should want to fix it. So that's kind of the attitude that I approached it with. Yeah, your your tone is working for me in Filthy Rich Politicians because I feel like I'm an, a skeptic who desperately wants to be an institutionalist. Like, please convince me that you guys are worth trusting. But my optimism on that front has decreased a lot over, I would say, the last 10 years for many reasons. And in many institutions, including the one that we are part of, which is the media. And you talk a little bit about now, it's not that I trusted them a ton to begin with. I've always thought that the media was biased, but there's a little bit more to it than that at this point. And you talk a little bit about, and I think we share this, the, the dearth of, say, I don't know, state school kids, which is what I was, or even non-college educated people who work in media. By the way, it's totally possible to be a good reporter without having a college degree. That is a real gap between that institution and Americans. 
Yeah. And, you know, Mary Catherine and I, we've worked, we worked together, you know, at townhall.com for two or three years. And then we worked together later at the Daily Caller briefly. We overlapped there a little bit. And it was when I went to work at the Daily Caller that it really hit me. And we had this story. Somebody tipped me off to the story about there was a prominent liberal family and one of one of their scions had purchased a boat, like a big, like a sailboat and, and had wrecked it. And one of my readers was, you know, sending me pictures of this kind of scuttled vessel and saying that it was an ecological disaster and it was leaking oil. And, and, and obviously that would be hypocrisy, right? For a liberal family to be polluting the environment. So, you know, I tried to track down the story and, and get a quote. And out of the blue one day, I get a phone call from a member of this prominent liberal family. I wasn't expecting the call back. I, you know, you never know if they're actually ever going to get back to you. And he's trying to convince me that, in fact, this was not a big deal. It was not an ecological disaster. N- nothing to see here. Yes, the boat wrecked, but no, it wasn't a big deal. And he's like, do you, do you know anything about sailing or yachting? And I'm like, well, unless it's a bass boat, I have no idea. But As it turns out, that's not in my wheelhouse. So <laughs> yes, I cannot speak to that intelligently. So I went out into the bullpen of the Daily Caller and I said, like, hey, does anybody here know anything about sailing or yachting? And about 10 hands went up. And one of our many nautical experts was able to talk to this sort, to this person and uh, confirm Nobody would believe that we killed the story. We spiked the story, never ran it. But what I learned is that, wow, I'm not in Kansas anymore. I mean, like I work at a place where there are a lot of kind of rich, privileged people. And by the way, most of them were awesome people, great people, loved them. But if you think about it, like normal middle class, like working class people can't just move to Washington, D.C. at the age of 18 and intern for free and then maybe get a job paying $25,000 a year or something, right? Like normal people can't afford to do it. So I think what happens is you end up having this kind of selection bias where the people who cover the media or cover the news tend to be like a little more rich and, and from elite universities than, than you and I. And I think that there's a version of that in our political system among elected leaders, obviously, as well. Well, and all, it all combines to sort of create the prevailing narrative, right? Which is, I think, whether, look, obviously it's left and I disagree with it most of the time, but I do think it's sort of out of touch on this economic level as well. And it, it, those two combine to be problematic and they combine to create a conformity that then creates more conformity, right? Like you you and I have to be the weirdos on set if we're, <laughs> if we're at a major cable news place, actually one of our I should play a clip of this. We'll we'll find it. But one of our more famous appearances was <laughs> when we informed a CNN host, I believe it was anchor Brooke Baldwin, who I like, that indeed the behavior she was seeing on camera was pretty mobby. <laughs> yeah. She objected to that terminology. I believe it's the overreaction of the left. When you see people like Ted Cruz getting chased out of restaurants by a mob. Oh, when you see, you're when not you, going to use the mob I will, word Oh, here. It's, it's totally a mob. It is without there's a doubt. Mats, I mean, it's, it's, there's no other word mats, for it. It's a, go watch it. Put up the a video. Mob, stop, stop. A mob, a mob is what we saw 
in Charlottesville, Virginia, two Augusts ago. No. A mob is both. not what we saw chasing. I'm what not about, saying what, what they the did people, was right. What about the people who were at the Supreme Court banging on the walls? What do you call that? Civil protest? This was when a, uh, a mob of protesters showed up at a restaurant Ted mm. Cruz and his wife were dining at and basically chased them out of the restaurant. And you and I went on, and, and I think I first invoked the term, like, mob. And at the time, I didn't realize it, but clearly there must have been handed down from on high. A, during the morning meeting, they must have said, like, if anyone uses the word mob, you have to shut it down immediately because that's a right-wing talking point. Because, you know, a literal mob can't be called a mob. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so that's our role in those situations, and I think it's a... It can be a challenging thing to do, but a good thing to do for people's brains because their ideas need to be challenged instead of all of us conforming all the time. Tell me, though, I, I do think you're right that to the extent that politicians are wealthy when they get here, look, some of that is inherited, yes, but a lot of it is someone started a business and did well for themselves. And I don't object to that being a marker of their success and something that someone says, hey, that's a that's a resume you can hang your hat on that I feel good about voting for that guy. And by the way, I want to get a little bit into the story of Daryl Issa because I did not know that until I read your book. Isn't that crazy? And I want you to tell me about it. But <laughs> but the other side of the coin is the more problematic one, which is once they get here, suddenly everything's coming up roses financially for anyone who's who gets into office. And you note, especially before we get to Daryl Issa, Nancy Pelosi's story. And yes. I... I, as a political junkie, had not followed every single one of those transactions. But can you tell me a little bit about the how how deep that goes? Absolutely. So first, let me say Business Insider ranked the the richest like 25 members of Congress. And I include it in the appendix, that list. And then I went through and kind of did a little bio of how they made their money. And, and based on my estimates of the top, the richest 25 members, 13 got their money via marriage or inheritance. Wow. But that still leaves almost half who right. earned their money. And there's a great story about Kevin Hearn, who's an Oklahoma congressman who basically started out working at a McDonald's, saved enough money to buy a McDonald's franchise, and now owns, a, or at least he did own a lot of McDonald's and raised a lot of money from other McDonald's franchisees and is now one of the richest members of Congress. So I think that's like a very positive story. You know, if I were going to choose a way to get rich, that might be it. So <laughs> that's my, that's really my milieu. They call them the Mick Congressman. So, but yeah, Nancy Pelosi, I'll give you two quick stories about Nancy Pelosi and her husband, Paul, who's actually doing the investing. And none of this is dispositive, but I think all of it is very swampy and very curious. So in 2020, Paul Pelosi bought hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of Tesla stock, the call options on Tesla stock. Five weeks later, Joe Biden signed an executive order mandating that we begin to tra transition all of our state, local, and federal fleets to zero emissions vehicles by 2027. Mm. So you can imagine what happened to the price of the Tesla stock immediately after that. Lucky, perhaps. Maybe. Less than, a, 
Well, the next year, so 2021, Paul Pelosi exercises options on $10 million worth of Microsoft stock. This time, it was just two weeks later, the U.S. Army announces a deal with Microsoft where Microsoft will be producing these augmented reality headsets worth probably tens of billions of dollars over the next decade. So once again, very lucky, very curious, very suspicious. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. And then you offered an example, which I had not heard of. Again, I don't pay super close attention to this particular kind of issue, but the the idea of the IPOs that yes. Congress people are offered that normal people are not. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. And let me say, Mary Catherine, I also did not pay much attention to this issue until I wrote the book. So I was in the process of discovering and learning about it, which kind of made it fun for me. And it's given me another dimension now to write about as a columnist. But I must say, I'm also you know, not an expert. So I relied on some friends, including, I don't know if you know David Bonson, mm-hmm. who is someone who helped mentor me on this. I have another friend named Adam Drescher, and they really helped mentor me and tutor me and walk me through this. But basically, an IPO is an initial public offering, and that's when a company decides to go public. And what I didn't what I didn't understand is that getting invited to participate in an IPO is really, really rare. Like normally it it goes to like BlackRock or, you know, a a big firm. And then eventually it's possible for individuals to get in the game. But it's usually someone even wealthier than the Pelosi's. Right. Like someone who is so. The fact that the Pelosi's have been invited to participate in IPOs in and of itself is very suspicious. And it's and and you're pretty much guaranteed to make money when you are involved in an IPO, is my understanding. So, again, can't prove that it's anything sketchy. But, you know, but when I talk to people who who are experts in this, who've been doing this for decades, you know, they they tell me, like, I've never seen this. Right. You know, I've been doing this for 30 years and I've literally never seen anything like this before. Well, and in addition to the fact that it would be rare for an individual of their level of wealth, even though it is tremendous to be invited to an IPO, they also were able to pick up more shares. They were they were given more buying power than the average individual would be given. So all these combine into a sense that perhaps something is awry here. And I think, you know, voters looking at that situation are right to be concerned. You noted, you know, they're also not very shy about it. And I don't want to harp on only Pelosi, but you did note the the COVID era incident where she pulled her very expensive deluxe ice cream out of her very expensive freezer on camera. And that just speaks to some of the the disconnect. Do do you think that, that she actually paid a price for that behavior? I do marginally, but I think that the, the more troubling thing is that I think it erodes, you know, trust in the in lawmakers, basically. I, I think the American public is generally over this, actually. Like, I don't think they're outraged by it. I think they've baked it into the cake. And the assumption is that the game is rigged and that politicians like Pelosi aren't just cashing in on their position, but they're also sort of, you know, waving it in, in our faces. And so I think it's I think it's very damaging. And and that's why, to me, it doesn't even matter 
if they actually are engaging in insider trading or not. That's why I think we should ban stock trading for members of Congress. And by the way, my book came out Tuesday, July 18th. The very next day, Wednesday, July 19th, it was announced that the Senators Holly and Gillibrand would be co-sponsoring a bill that will do exactly what I'm what I'm calling for. So oh, fingers crossed. Because right now they can be they can trade. The idea would be you could trade via mutual funds or through it. Would it be a situation where you could trade through your husband, which is, by the way, you know what the fungible funds of the Pelosi household do? What are the what are the outlines of that? No, they are calling for banning banning individual stock trading for members of Congress, their spouses, their households, and their staff. Oh, wow. You could still own a mutual fund, but otherwise you're out of the game. And I, that that is something I think that this would be, among the reforms I have in the book, this would be the most important. And again, it doesn't even matter if they're actually engaged in insider trading. Like My goal is not to punish Nancy Pelosi. It's not to get even. It is to restore trust and kind of move past this problem. And so I think that this reform is appropriate. And look, you don't have to be in Congress right. and you don't have to stay there for 30 years either. You know, if you want to bet on the stock market, you, you don't have to, you don't have to, you know, do this job, but if, if you're that's going your passion. to do it, yes, but if you're going to do it, I, I don't think it's asking too much. What are some other reforms that you think could make a dent in this problem? One of them is uh, a more a ten year moratorium on the revolving door of going straight from Congress into lobbying. One of them, actually, this one's not sexy, and and it's hard to for me to get people jazzed about this one, but it's it has to do with book deals. You know, politicians make a lot of money on these book deals. In fact, Bernie Sanders became a millionaire because of a book deal. Ron DeSantis just became a millionaire because of a book deal. But more concerning are the bulk purchases where like a Republican senatorial committee could buy 50,000 copies of your book and um, put it on the bestseller list. And some of that money, royalties and or the advance might end up back in your own in your pocket, uh, personal pocket. And so that that one, it's hard to get people anger, angry or upset. But, but, no, but those, that is one of those one of a handful of sort of backdoor big paychecks, right? I'm so it is. Not, not that I'm casting, I'm not throwing shade at SCOTUS on this, but that's one of the stories about, for instance, Sotomayor who had a big book deal and that's how they get their money because they don't make a ton as justices. Totally. And look, you can write a book. That's your you know free speech and all that. But I would cap it. Members of Congress right now, the normal average member makes 174000 They have another $30,000, which is called outside earned income. You could do like a consulting gig or something and make. So I would say you could make $30,000 and I would actually raise their pay, by the way. I would pay members of Congress more so that they can actually focus on their job instead of trying to like have these side hustles, you know, going all the time. So, yeah, there's there's probably like 10 or 15. Here's another one. I would ban the payment of of family by campaigns and by congressional offices. That would be nice. So like, for example, Ilhan Omar directed millions of dollars to her husband's consulting firm. Right. That money, you know, on one hand, it's perfectly normal and legal, right? You raise, politicians have to raise a lot of money. They have to hire consulting firms. Those consulting firms have to take a percentage of payment. It's just, but another way of looking at it is like, well, 
in a way, she's like potentially laundering some campaign money back into her personal pocket. Yes. And it's just so skeezy on its face, right? I, it may be normal and it may be legal, but it's skeezy. It's, yeah. And that's <laughs> the problem. That's a technical term. A technical and I think term. we should avoid the appearance of impropriety and like, you know, I, I don't get into the Supreme Court stuff, but like you mentioned Sotomayor, I think like with, you know, Justice Thomas, whom I generally like and agree with his judicial philosophy, but like probably not a good look to take, you know, some vacation, like he's very nice vacations on someone else's dime, like in hindsight. So I would just call on them to uh, to avoid the appearance of impropriety, too. Can we talk a little bit and go into current events here with the a little bit more than a appearance of impropriety with the Hunter Biden stories? <laughs> Absolutely. So I was on Fox this week up against my my good friend, Juan Williams, who made an argument, the an Ilhan Omarian argument, which was basically nepotism is fine and normal and not illegal. And that's what this is. One, I think it's problematic for trust even if it is legal and normal, right? I thought we were against Nepo babies, but maybe we're not right now. It depends on the party. But second of all, it seems to be quite a bit more than that. And we will hear shortly his, his former business partner and another person connected to Burisma has said he will speak to the oversight committee and tell us what he knows, including the idea that perhaps Joe Biden was actually on the phone with Hunter Biden while doing these deals multiple times. What is your take on how much of a deal this is? Because people will say, you're just after Joe through Hunter and Hunter is a, he's his kid and he's not running for office. Well, I think it's very problematic and it could be a big deal politically, depending on how it plays out. I do think that in some ways, Joe Biden is Teflon. Like he's like, you know, Ronald Reagan in a way, like people like him. And I like I know I'm sure people listening now are like, what are you talking about? I hate him. But right. but I think that there's a sense because honestly, he's so out of it that he's like a grandpa. He's kind of harmless. And I think he's been able to cultivate this, you know, Uncle Joe grandfatherly image. And so it will it would take a lot to to change the narrative that he has established recently about him being the kindly old grandfather. But look, I mean, I would say you know, two things like it's possible that there is something really ugly and illegal and, 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 you know, that, that Biden is the quote big guy and that there's going to be a bombshell that really will go off and, and it's going to be shocking. And then I think there's also the version where it's like, it's, it's just a low grade, the banality of corruption. And in that case, it will fit into my book. Like one of the things that I, learned in writing the book is that it's not just Hunter, you know, Joe Biden has these two brothers, Frank and James, who've been trading off his name for decades. And I think recently, if they're not still doing it, they've been doing it very recently, cashing in off the idea that, that you know, if you hire them to give a speech, they can get something in front of Joe Biden's eyes or his desk. And, and, and way back in 2000, I'm sorry, not 2000, way back in 1980, 88. Okay. When Joe Biden ran for president the first time, he raised approximately 11 million dollars, 20 million, I'm sorry, 20% of the 11 million he raised, 20% went to Biden's family or companies that employed them. So this is a long pattern. Yeah. 
And it's funny because there's a there's a great piece that I'll, I think I've commended to my audience before in Politico magazine called Biden Inc. that came out in 2017. I can't remember which year it was, but it was like before we had decided that many in the press were going to sort of cover for this stuff or elide some of this stuff. And it broke down how James and Hunter did all these deals and how uh, they were often Ponzi schemes or scams or like bizarre takeovers of investment firms. And it goes into great detail about this. So this has been going on for quite some time. To me, the the art sales that we just learned about, now the, the art sales oh, we knew yeah. were happening. So Hunter Biden is a an artist, just <laughs> like he's a Ukrainian energy specialist. You know, he's <laughs> he's a real Renaissance man. So he's an artist and he's doing these showings and these paintings are priced for purchase at hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases and perhaps more in, in some of them. He's getting solo gallery shows in Soho. I mean, it's a whole thing. And people will look at you straight faced and be like, no, it's fine that anonymous people are buying $500,000 paintings from this guy who's not an artist in a $500,000 painting Soho gallery sense. So what are you really buying? Well, now it's come to light that a Democratic donor has put perhaps over a million dollars into these paintings. And for what, we ask ourselves? Yeah. And, you know, we get so many of these controversies, it's hard to remember them. But just a couple weeks ago, you may recall there was a story where Hunter Biden's his, you know, he has this daughter out of wedlock that, that Joe Biden doesn't want to acknowledge she exists. And as I recall, they came to a settlement or a deal having to do with child support. And the deal was the girl will not use the last name Biden. And in return, she gets hunt some of Hunter's paintings. That's correct. And so my question is, why would she say yes to that deal unless she had reason to believe she could sell those paintings to someone for a lot of money, which means, and my, maybe I'm being too suspicious here, but it sounds to me like someone else is going to be paying Hunter's child support for him by virtue of this bogus painting, you know, which trade, which we're to believe. Yeah. Are they are they inherently valuable? I'm not sure about that. And it's yeah, it was a bizarre stipulation. I think you're correct, which like I want her to get her money because I believe the order was five thousand a month for him, which is 60K <laughs> from the Biden family for a year, which seems it seems low to me. So so that is going on. Uh, how does this animate 2024? Because I think I think the Hunter Biden story is very worth talking about in part because of this trust problem. And one of the IRS whistleblowers said so. I believe it it was Ziegler, who is a Democrat, who said, I'm I'm risking my reputation and I'm sure his social life as well, by the way, to come forward about this because I think it's important that the American people know we treat them fairly. Which, like, I didn't expect me being a fan of an IRS agent on my bingo card this year, but he's (laughs) correct. He's correct, right? So I think it's worth talking about for that reason. And I think there's tremendous evidence at this point that there is a two-track system and we don't want that. But how do you talk about that for the 2024 race and not get so caught up in Hunter Biden Hmm. and send the signal to people who are really struggling that you're obsessed with Hunter Biden instead of their kitchen table issues? 
That is a great question. And I think Republicans are susceptible to that mistake because everybody wants to believe that they can win via scandal. It's the same reason that Democrats in the media thought they could take down Trump with the Russiagate stuff. And so Republicans think, oh, we could take down Biden. This is the silver bullet. Oh, and maybe we can impeach him, too. That'll that'll make Trump happy and we can beat him. And so on one hand, I think it is very appropriate to look into Hunter Biden and to see where this story goes. If if Joe Biden is, in fact, implicated in it, that is fair game. Absolutely. But I think it's a temptation for Republicans to obsess over this. And that will prevent them from actually maybe doing the real work of developing policies and talking about the economy or other, you know, kitchen table issues. Yeah, I think it it's definitely a danger. And I also, in politics, I think you always have to guard against, okay, I'm passionate about this thing, but it doesn't mean everyone's passionate about this thing. And for me, okay, there is a little, I'm, I am interested in this story, partly because there was such a, a press push to censor it. And I think that's a, to me on the speech issue, which I am passionate about, that's so problematic. And my fellow journalists should be default on the side of free speech. And yet they are not. And too often assume the government knows what it's doing and can push, you know, any social media to, to do its bidding. So I think that's bad and I care about it, but that does not mean voters care about it as much as I do. Same with COVID shutdowns. I care about accountability for that very much, but 2022 showed me that, hey, look, voters don't care about it as much as you do. Maybe they did in Virginia in 2021, maybe a little bit in Nevada, but it's hard not to project your concerns on the electorate that you're talking to. And they have to be careful about that. Definitely. I do think talking about Hunter Biden helps Republicans in another way, which is probably, you know, obvious, but, you know, Donald Trump has done and said so many outrageous and egregious things that it's really hard to def- to defend supporting him, like just on the merits. But if you can say, yeah, but look at the other side. But Joe Biden won't even like acknowledge his own granddaughter and his son is like this crack addict who has all these nude pictures with like, how can we support that in good conscience, you know? And so I think it muddies the water and levels the playing field. Now, I have to say, when it comes to my book, Filthy Rich Politicians, I, I, I don't spend too much time on Trump or Biden, but I try to spend equal, equal time criticizing, you know, these, these examples, you know, to, to be fair handed, but I would say qualitatively and quantitatively, Trump is worse, even if the Bidens are guilty of everything they look like they might be guilty of. We're talking like maybe tens of millions of dollars. Right. Meanwhile, Jared Kushner, you know, just one example on the way out of the White House gets this two billion dollar investment from a Saudi fund into into his, you know, account. It's two billion dollars. You know, that's that's, a lot of money. That's a lot. That's a B. That is. So his private equity firm. So once again, Trump, bigger, you know, bigger than than the competition, always outdoes the competition. Let me ask you about this. It's, it looks like a new soccer mom just dropped. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> the AP is reporting that much like NASCAR dads or security moms or soccer moms, that the new term is mama bears. 
for 2024. Now, I believe we dabbled in this with Sarah Palin, did yeah. we not? We dabbled yeah, in, in fact, it on the Bears. I was at, you might have been there too. I was at the event. It was in like Crystal City, Virginia, Pentagon City or something. It was a Susan B. Anthony list rally that Sarah Palin spoke at, I think in 2010, when she dropped for the first time ever the term Mama Grizzly. Mm -hmm. I remember being there at that event when it happened. So we're now in, you know, year 12 of the Mama Grizzly phenomenon. So the, the thought is that it might be, you know, the moniker, the group that matters, especially for this GOP primary season. It says these conservative mothers and grandmothers who in recent years have organized parental rights, which is in scare quotes in AP, including banning discussion of gender identity in schools, have been classified as extremists by the Southern Poverty Law Center, which, I mean, who among us has not? They've also been the most coveted voters so far in the 2024 Republican presidential primary. Now, this is interesting to me because I think there's there are two, there's a spectrum of mama bears, and it's not all conservative. And this is the sort of the fallout from the school closings, where in Northern Virginia, especially, there's not actually that many right-wing moms. There's, <laughs> I, I'm friends with all of them, but there's not that many, right? There's a lot of liberals here, but they were the mama bears during 2020 and 21. They're folks who were able, persuadable for a Yunkin vote, which is why he's now governor of Virginia. So it's interesting to me because you, there are very right-leaning mama bears that you have to appeal to in a primary process. And then you have to do the thing where you come back to the middle and you talk to these suburban moms who went for Yunkin. How does one accomplish that and, and meet that group's needs? I feel like this is a media invented story. Like, okay. you know, you, yes, we have to appeal to voters. And but it's like trying, they're trying to make fetch happen. You know, they're trying to make mama. Well, we got to have happen. a thing. Yeah, we got to have a thing that we talk about. But I think soccer moms still holds. I mean, the suburban moms that Yunkin needed to win, what's wrong with just calling them soccer moms? Is that offensive? I, I don't know. No, they remain soccer moms. I guess I guess Mama Bears might be the primary version of the soccer moms whose kids probably play soccer, but it's a different ideology than the general election soccer mom. Maybe that's the the theory. Yeah, I mean, I guess these are the the moms who are like activists and organized and they're very like, I don't want to say radicalized, but they're very keen on pushing back against the trans issue and, and things like that. Yes. And I guess I mean, I guess the question is, like, is this a new is this a new phenomenon? Maybe, maybe. I do feel like it's more school focused than it's been in the past on the right, right? Like there were, there were moms who had concerns, but this is very curriculum based. What are they teaching my kids? And I think some of that came from, I always say that people get the order of operations wrong on the culture wars in schools, which is nobody was into the gender ideology or the DEI discussion in schools until you closed schools for a year. And then they were like, look, I can take a lot of BS when my schools are open, but I'm not sure about yes. now. And so people yeah. got got more aware of what was going on. They demanded some basics that their school was not giving them, including opening the doors to children. And then that turned them on to this other stuff. Now, not every mom came, came along on that journey, but I do think- I was maybe willing to go along with, you know, the, the gender hormone therapy, as long as you were providing daycare. But now, 
You've crossed a line. It is a real thing that they're like, well, first that they noticed. And second (laughs) of all, I think I'm the same way where it's like, if you're giving me the basic service, if you want to dabble in some nonsense and some indoctrination, like I got a lot going on in my life. Maybe I don't object so much until you fail me in this giant way. And then we have a trust problem, right? Now it's game one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is where my bandwidth for protesting you kicks in. (laughs) And there is also the thing, as you sort of alluded to, where people were like hearing it. They were overhearing things on Zoom because now the the class was taking place at home. Yes. Yeah. Mom and dad are around and they overhear things being said. So they're just more attuned or more aware of what's going on. I I think that's part of it, too. Yeah. And then the, the flip side of the Zoom equation also, and this is my this is one of my pet peeves, but is that in these places where schools were shut down, they also kept most parents from speaking out about it because they would close. The public meetings didn't exist, right? They were on Zoom, and then you'd have a limited number of people who could speak. And so a lot of that release valve of like discussing these things in public didn't happen uh, because people were not allowed to do that. Uh, so it's that's how you get a real animated yes. mama bear constituency, if we are to call it that, which I'm for for the reason that I feel like we've done this already and that w- what you allude to, they might just be soccer moms. I'm, I'm with you. I'm not sure I'm making fetch happen right now. What is your guess for whether Donald Trump shows up on stage in August? Well, I don't think he'll come to the first debate, but really? no, I think I think he'll sit it out. But I think that he will be goaded into appearing. So so logically, strategically, I think you could I think Trump could make an argument to sit the whole thing out, never show up. He's, he's like, he's so far ahead. Yeah. What could, you know, why, why, in, you know, why open the door to, to the possibility? Why elevate someone else's status? But I just don't think Trump can avoid, he, he loves attention. And if, and if, and if Ron DeSantis is there and if Chris Christie's there and we're talking about them, I just don't think Trump can avoid it. So I think he'll try to stay out and I think he will be sucked into it despite the fact that the, the smart strategic move might well be to just steer clear of it. Yeah, I think I think eventually he will be goaded into appearing. I think he might be goaded into appearing at the first one. But we shall see. We can we yeah. can check back on that and see what happens. I want to close with your book. But before we do that, I want to do a, a, an update on Carly Russell, because we've been talking about that on this show. Carly yeah, Russell is the 25 year old Alabama woman who went missing and the story about a kidnapping and then she showed up on her doorstep a couple days later she if my audience remembers she had said she saw a toddler by the side of the road she calls 911 she has now apologized and confessed that there was no kidnapping all of the national attention to this all of the resources used for it all the police investigating for naught because she staged it and my sort of existential question on this or as i approach the news is do i feel bad for her because there's seriously something wrong. Like, I'm glad she's still with us. There's seriously something wrong here that needs to be dealt with. But a lot of people have zero sympathy (laughs) for this business. And I'm, I feel like I'm on the more sympathetic end than many people. Where are you on this? So that question never crossed my mind. I do have a couple takeaways. Yes, please. So one, if you're going to do something bad, don't Google about it because this keeps tripping people up. And that happened with her. She was Googling about kidnappings and, and, and taken, 
Yeah, that's right. The movie Taken. So don't do that. The other thing that struck me was it was not about her, like at the micro level. I was thinking about this trend at the macro level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a weird analogy, but remember Rachel Dolezal? Yes. The, the woman who pretended to be an African-American. And then you have like George Santos, right, who kind of played up his minority status and his victim status in some ways. I think for some reason in our society today, there is there is no nobler thing than to have been a victim in mm -hmm. some way. And, and I, I suspect this is part of that. There is people used to pretend, you know, stolen valor. You know, they would right. pretend that they were a hero. Now I think people pretend that they've been victimized. And so that's my take on this. No, you're right. There's cultural cachet in having this story and being a national news story all of a sudden and probably riches to be had on the other end because that is rewarded in our society. So I think I think there's something there and maybe beyond the vic victimhood, just the attention. Like yes. there is an incentive to garner attention in whatever way is necessary. And I don't know if this one just like got away from her, but, and maybe she didn't think it was going to be a national news story when she was trying to, I don't know, make her boyfriend jealous or whatever she was <laughs> trying to do, but it becomes problematic because it incentivizes bad behavior. And the next time police come across a missing woman who might actually be missing, perhaps fewer resources are used yeah. and less attention is given. And that is the part that I am mad about. I'm less mad at her than Jesse Smollett because she didn't you know, single out an entire half of the country based on political ideology to blame and make that up. So she's got that going for her. <laughs> I'd forgotten all about Jesse. Oh, you can't uh, but, forget Jesse. <laughs> but you're right. That's a similar thing. And he was someone who already enjoyed yes. a great level of fame, but it just wasn't an, wasn't enough. Still had to be the victim. Actually, speaking of Jesse, Dave Chappelle famously did did a great bit on Jesse and and how various people responded to that. You mentioned Chappelle in your book, actually. Yes. And it, it sort of ties a bow a little bit on our 2024 discussion because he talked about what people appreciate about Donald Trump. Tell me a little bit about that bit and the point that he made. Yeah. So this was from a, the Saturday Night Live uh, monologue that they, it was contra a controversial monologue, as I recall, for various reasons. But he, he talked about Donald Trump at that debate in 2016 with Hillary Clinton when Hillary Hillary said to Trump, paraphrasing here, but Hillary said, like, you you don't pay your taxes. You didn't pay income taxes. And Trump's like, yeah, that makes me smart. And basically the point was Trump was saying, like, yeah, I'm rich and and this is a racket. And I I know how the, the game is played. And so I'm telling you that it's a game, that it's a racket. And Dave Chappelle said, because he lives in Ohio, so he was Chappelle he was knows. Sort of yeah. explaining that he knows the pe people in his area, why they like Trump and why it resonated. And he, he described Trump as a, quote, honest liar. And I really like that way of framing it, because like everyone knows that Trump is full of it. But he's also and ironically also authentic and real. He's not a phony even though he lies constantly. <laughs> yes. No, it is it is a very strange thing. And he does, he offers these peaks behind the curtain. Yes. Like, this is what we're doing here. And we all know that this is what we're doing here, right? 
Yes. And he, you know, there's an old saying in politics, hang a lantern on your problem. And, and Trump's problem was that he was rich. And remember Mitt Romney basically apologized for being rich, pretended not to be rich. And Trump was like, oh yeah, of course I'm rich. Super rich. I'm, I'm, I'm way richer than Mitt Romney. And I know how the game is played. That's why you need to hire me. So it was ironic, but it really, it did work. And, and I have to tell you, I mean, there's a lot of things about Donald Trump I don't like, but I do find him funny and there is a likability to him. And when you compare him to like, let's say Ron DeSantis, it is a stark contrast. Yeah. So I know I think you're, you're right. in that people sort of too often underplay how much it matters that he is entertaining. It's huge. And, and so, and sometimes I'm like, why am I even entertained by this? Cause these are such lazy jokes and like, but he gets <laughs> like interacting with the crowd. He gets all of that. Whereas He's child, he is childlike in so many ways. And there is, I mean, I have a, a 12 year old and a 10 year old, and there are things that Trump does and says that remind me of my kids in a way. And it's weirdly charming. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then DeSantis on the flip side is like, I will fight with the media and also bring a whole entire list of facts to that fight, which I love and I'm here for it. I think a lot of people are, but it is a totally different vibe of fighting and it doesn't have that little back and forth that Trump has that's entertaining on the stage. Let's close with, with a question about networking. It comes, this is in the book, Filthy Rich Politicians, which you can get anywhere, guys. I go look it up. But I wanted to ask you about networking because you talk about how people who are born into wealthy communities, they sort of learn networking early. They learn why it matters. They learn that you sort of do these favors for people and not in an untoward way. It's just the sort of water they swim in. I'm wondering what you think about how we can economically and ideologically diversify the elites by learning to do more of that, to to get out of that rut. Because I, I had no idea what networking was until I got to D.C. And I didn't want to do it cynically, but it's not right to hang it up entirely, right? You, this yeah. is part of how human relationships work. Tell me a little bit about how, how for lack of a better time, normal people can, can make inroads in these ways. When you're right, I mean, there's a a negative sort of networking where you're looking over the shoulder yes. for the next person to hand a business card to. And then as, as, as my brethren might call it, it's felt there's fellowship, you know? And so it's, it's in the eye of the beholder, but no, I grew up in Western Maryland, very rural area. My dad was a prison guard for 30 years. He voluntarily went to jail so I could uh, get paid to write about politics. And, you know, my parents knew as being kind of aspiring middle-class folks, they knew we got to send our boy to college. That's, that's how you get social up. mobility. So they knew to send me to college, but like, you know, I never did an internship. I never volunteered on a campaign and I never just observed the normal process of like dad's friends, a banker. He gave me an internship, like give and take, which I don't think is, is a bad thing. It can be uh, very reciprocal and not manipulative. I mean, it can be relationships and friendships right. and, and mentoring and all that kind of stuff. all that. Yeah. But it's just it's a foreign concept. My, my dad went to this horrible job all day long or all night long, oftentimes working the night shift for years. And then he came home and he wanted to spend time with his family. He didn't. Yeah. He, he was a great dad in the sense that he was playing catch with me in the backyard. But I, I didn't see that. And so literally when I was like 25, 
someone gave me this book called Dig Your Well Before You're Thirsty, the only networking book you'll ever need. And I literally read this book and it blew me away. Just the idea, the concept of networking was a foreign concept to me. And I think that I think it's something that needs to be taught. And I think we should be teaching underprivileged kids about networking and how to do it and the importance of it, of making friends and say, you know, writing a handwritten note or, or, or DMing people or whatever it is, staying in touch with people. Well, and how, how that can get you closer to the room where it happens, so to speak, right? That, that the more people, you know, and again, I tell young interns in DC this all the time. Uh, it doesn't have to be gross, right? If you are generally kind to people in this town, I know there are plenty of ways to get ahead in this town by being disgusting. Sure. However, in my career, I have attempted to be kind to people, to help them out when they ask for help to the best of my ability and not think too much about what they had to give me in return because that's just not the way I do business or don't do business as it would, as it were. <laughs> but that ends up benefiting you just because you are meeting people, they end up in different places, they know somebody who to connect you with, even if you're just reporting on something and you need to know someone at HHS in this office. Great, totally. you know two people at HHS and it helps you to just move forward in an honest, real way. Absolutely. And I think it's, I think it's beautiful, this version that you and I are talking about now, the, the positive version of it. And, you know, I also think this is related to networking, but it's not exactly networking. But, you know, Woody Allen said 80% of life is just showing up and being nice to your point. Like, I've always thought, like, I'm probably not the best writer. I'm not Hemingway. I'm not the best sourced. I'm not Bob Costa. But if you book me to come on TV, I will show up and I will be nice to the driver, the car, the person who drives me there. I will be nice to the makeup artist and I'll give it 100%. And I think people know, like, well, Matt's a, you know, he'll, sh I think it's more likely you'll be successful, even if you're just moderately talented. But if you're nice, a lot of producers are going to be like, okay, let's pencil in that. Let's yeah. do it. My father told me when I started in the news business, I was a reporter at a daily uh, paper when I first started. And he told me, and you guys can decide if this is a backhanded compliment or inspirational. He told me, you'll be surprised how far basic competence will get you. <laughs> So true. And I said, well, at least he thinks I have that. So if you have a little more, which I think you do, Matt Lewis, you can you can make it pretty far. So I appreciate your takes in Filthy Rich Politicians. I think it's a real problem. I think people should check it out and check you out at Matt K. Lewis. Do you have anything else to plug for us? Oh, let's see. Yeah, get get the book. Actually, we still have the website up as of now. If you go to filthyrichbook.com. You can, you can order the book, but you can also download a podcast I did about the book. You can also download chapter one and the intro free immediately. And I will send you a signed book plate. So all of that at filthyrichbook.com. And I have a little podcast too, MKH, called Matt Lewis and the News. So check that out as well. Love it. Check Matt out wherever you can find him. Thank you for tackling this and for explaining these financial issues to me, which sometimes go over my head. And uh, you have done the research and the hard work so that I can understand exactly how deep this problem goes. I am at MK Hammer Time on Instagram, at MK Hammer on Twitter. Thanks for being here and getting hammered responsibly. This has been a Nebulous Media Podcast. Mm -hmm.